0: This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original, short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at PendustRadio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.
1: This short story brings us into the life of William, a young boy who must deal with some unexpected circumstances after World War II. After being evicted from their home, his family finds a new place to live in a resort community on Lake Michigan. There, William makes a special new friend and faces some dramatic events. Robert Sachs' fiction has appeared in numerous literary journals. He holds an MFA in writing from Spaulding University. This is a work of fiction. Traces of an Early Summer Written by Robert Sachs Read by Paul Ulrich Eviction was a new word to eight-year-old William. When he repeated it, it tasted of ugliness and fear. Their lease was up, and his family was being kicked out of their apartment, His father told him it was because the G.I.s returning from the war needed apartments. It's who you know, his father warned, not what you know. But none of the families of William's other friends were being kicked out of their apartments, only his. What did that say about his family? Why them? They had done their part to help win the war. Rationing, paper drives, victory gardens, and his father had worked at a munitions plant. And now, after all the celebrating, they were forced to leave the only home William had ever known. His mother told him that finding a new apartment in their northwest side neighborhood had proven difficult. That's where we want to live, she said. We'll wait until something opens up, but in the meantime we've rented a cabin in South Haven. William was to leave school two months early. His mother assured him she had worked things out with his teacher so he wouldn't lose a grade when he got back in the fall. Their furniture would be stored with family and friends. "'It's an adventure, William,' his mother said. "'A summer vacation starting in April.' In a way, William was glad he'd be out of the city, away from his friends, so he wouldn't have to explain the eviction or, worse yet, listen to their explanations. South Haven was a resort town, with bright white resort hotels strung like charms on the sandy bracelet formed by the southeastern shore of Lake Michigan as it bottomed out and made the turn west toward Benton Harbor, Gary, Hammond, and up to Chicago. If you walked east from the lake and these grand hotels, you'd find the motor inns, their vacancy signs buzzing with neon. Beyond them, the brightly painted houses on streets named Elm, Oak, and Main. Then the little park, with a statue commemorating local soldiers who had died in World War I. And, finally, the Cooperage, the Black River, and the bridge into town. It was a ten-minute walk. You probably wouldn't notice the narrow dirt road across from the park, heading north for a block before ending in bushes, brush, and evergreens. Tiny gray houses dotted that road. William's father stopped his 37 Chevrolet sedan at the end of it, in front of Nettie Pollock's Grocery a wood-framed rectangle with large windows on either side of the entrance. An old, unfinished painting project testified to decades of neglect. The interior of the grocery was lit by two low-wattage bulbs dangling from the ceiling. Everyone shopped in town for meat or fish, but for everything else, from milk to canned goods to toilet paper to fishing lures and live bait, it was Nettie's. She and her son, Daniel, lived in a room in the back of the store. Beyond the grocery, William noticed, lay a dense thicket. He wondered what kind of creatures roamed in that endless darkness. Behind the store was the small wood cabin that would be their home, until... he didn't know when. His mother had promised Labor Day, but how could she know when they would find an apartment back in Chicago? Inside, they found a small bedroom and a bathroom without a tub or shower. Nettie had arranged for them to take showers at the Meltons, an elderly couple in the house across the street. The cabin had a screened-in porch and a larger room that served as a combination living room, dining room, and kitchen. A hundred storms blowing in off the lake had peeled away most of the cabin's pale green paint. William was given a cot on the porch looking out on the back of the grocery, perhaps twenty yards away. The thick canopy of two old sugar maples covered most of the cabin's roof, the back half of the grocery, and the space in between, creating a feeling of overcast gloom even on the sunniest days. It was here, with his back against the grocery wall, that Nettie's son Daniel sat, hour after hour, knees to his chest, humming an unidentifiable tune. William was surprised by Daniel's size, taller than his own father, with droopy eyes and large, soft hands. His thick black hair was long and unruly. Daniel! Nettie's call was sharp and angry. Daniel, get in here! William would hear her call him often during their stay. Daniel would get up without emotion to take out the garbage, empty boxes, sweep the floor, wash the front windows, or change a light bulb. When William and his mother first arrived, Nettie motioned for Daniel to help unload their things. Tell him exactly where you want him to put your stuff, she told William's mother. Thank you. I see there's no lock on the door. No need for locks here, Nettie said. This ain't Chicago. Every now and again a thief might find his way into town, but it ain't usual. Ain't nothing to worry about. William's father kissed his wife and son goodbye. He would stay with his sister's family in Chicago during the week to work and look for a new apartment. He'd drive up on weekends when he could. Nettie looked old and weathered to William, her skin tight against her thin frame, her pale blue eyes set deep in recessed sockets. She was tall and wore her shoulder-length gray hair pulled back in a ponytail held up by a thick rubber band. Her hands were large and bony with crooks and outcroppings, the consequence, William would later learn, of arthritis. The set of her jaw did not seem to allow a smile. She and Daniel had moved from Chicago to South Haven to run the store after her father died. If she was happy to have this business, it didn't show. Settling in, William plopped down on his lumpy cot, resigned to the extended stay. He found himself thinking of home, and then, realizing he no longer knew where that was, if anything good was to come of this forced exile, he surely didn't see it in the tall weeds of the approaching summer. It wasn't summer yet, and guess at the enormous palaces along the lakefront weren't expected for another couple of months. The cold gusts from the northwest still had the nasty bite of winter. Lying on his cot reading a comic book, William was focused on Crippled Freddy, the poor newsboy who could turn himself into Captain Marvel Jr. just by shouting, Captain Marvel! Month after month, in each new issue, it surprised William that Jr., having vanquished the bad guys, always went back to being Freddy, hobbling along on an old wooden crutch, selling his newspapers, and waiting for the next adventure. William wondered why he needed to return to that difficult life. Did he like it? William looked up to see Daniel sitting against the back wall of the grocery, humming, and thought, if he had the choice between being a crime-fighting superhero or a lame newsboy, he knew which one he'd pick. William, I don't want you sitting around for days at a time. Go out and play. Like water over ice cubes, his mother's voice cracked his world of superheroes. He looked up. With who, Mom? I don't see any kids around. If he couldn't get back to Chicago and his friends, he just wanted to bury himself in his comic books. Even school would be better than this. "'What about Daniel?' his mother whispered, glancing at the large young man sitting in the dirt, staring at the stem of a single leaf he held between his thumb and forefinger. "'Daniel. He wasn't a grown-up, but he certainly wasn't a kid, and William sensed he'd always be in that space between.' He couldn't imagine playing with him. Mom, William put his head down on the cot and listened to her drone. I don't want you sitting around waiting for summer. It became a test of wills, but after a few days with nothing to do, William grew desperate for activity. Daniel was sitting in his usual spot behind the grocery, tying and untying his shoelaces. He didn't seem to notice William standing just a few feet away. Hey, Daniel? The young man raised his head slowly with an uncertain look. William wasn't sure if it was because he didn't recognize him or because he was surprised he'd spoken to him. Yeah? Want to play catch? William held up a pink rubber ball, wondering if Daniel had ever played catch before. Daniel got up, smoothed his shirt and pants with both hands. Okay, as long as we stay near the store... He glanced at the back of the grocery. William nodded. Okay, ready? He threw the ball to Daniel. It hit his shoulder and bounced back, so William lobbed the next one gently underhanded. Daniel caught it and tossed it back the same way. They continued throwing the ball back and forth underhanded. Daniel's eyes and his mouth were open wide when the ball came his way. And when he caught it, he smiled. William noticed Daniel's mother watching from behind the old screen door of the grocery, but when William caught her eye, she turned away. After that, William and Daniel played catch every day. Once, with Nettie's approval, they walked to the park, where the lush green was interrupted here and there by flowerbeds of purple crocus and white petunias. Daniel headed for the swings, and William followed. The thick chains attached to the painted wood seats groaned as they sat down. After getting the feel of the swing, William stood up, pumping and pulling until he was almost horizontal and couldn't go any higher. At that height, he could see the tops of the beachfront resorts gleaming in the afternoon sun. On the upswing, the cold wind splashed against his face. On the backswing, it rattled the back of his neck. He felt free. Ah, to fly, if only he had the magic words to make that happen. Absorbed in the thrill, he momentarily forgot he was in a new place, forgot about Daniel, who creaked back and forth with caution, never going very high. Hey, William? Daniel had stopped swinging and was looking down. William slowed his swing. You could get hurt, Daniel said in a whisper as if he was unsure whether or not it was his place to keep William safe. William assured him he did this often back home and that he was careful. Once my friend Ralph tried going all the way around, he actually made it over the top, but then he fell and broke his shoulder. Daniel was silent for a moment. Did he die? he asked softly, without looking at William. Something in his voice made William wonder about Daniel's experience with death. He hadn't mentioned a father, and William knew enough not to ask. He remembered a girl on his block whose father had been killed in the war. She had brought some of his medals to school and told the class how he'd killed some Germans and that he died saving other G.I.s. William wondered if Daniel had a similar story about his father. But instead of asking, he assured Daniel that Ralph was fine. He missed some school and had to wear a cast for a while, he said. Both began to swing again, slowly, this time in unison. "'I was born in Chicago,' Daniel said after a silent minute. "'But I don't remember anything about it.' William wondered if he was just a baby when he left or if there was some other reason for this lack of memory. He felt Daniel wanted to hear more about the city, so he told him about his neighborhood, school, and friends.' how they climbed to the roof of a three-story apartment building and saw the beacon on top of the Palmolive building all the way downtown. He told Daniel about some of the tricks he played on Halloween. Daniel laughed at the one about smearing honey on the handles of car doors. And when he laughed, he covered his face with his hands. His laugh, in turn, made William laugh. He told Daniel how, the previous summer, he and a friend made slingshots in a woodcarving class at the River Park Fieldhouse and how one night they shot pebbles at passing cars from behind a row of bushes. You shouldn't do that, Daniel said. But when William smiled, Daniel begged for more stories. William told him how he once took the L all the way downtown and back, alone, without his parents knowing. He made Daniel promise to keep that a secret. Daniel was interested in everything William had to say. William told Daniel how he and his dad often took the bus to Wrigley Field. They would sit in the bleachers and eat hot dogs. The first time was on William's fifth birthday, when they saw the Cubs play the Dodgers. William's father taught him how to mark a scorecard, and this became his job, so they had a complete record of the game. They had hot dogs and pop, even during Passover, when it had to be a secret between them. "'Play ball!' William yelled. He couldn't stop himself from jumping off the swing, showing Daniel how the pitcher always put the ball behind his back and looked down toward the catcher to sign. William wound up and threw an imaginary pitch. Daniel laughed. He told William he'd never seen a baseball game, nor did he and Nettie ever listen to the games on the radio. William promised to show him his mitt and league ball when they got back to the cabin, and the more he talked about Chicago, "'the surer William felt his father would soon find a place "'for his family in the old neighborhood. "'He returned to his swing, then, "'and for a minute or two both boys swayed back and forth in silence, "'like saplings in a gentle breeze. "'I never went to school,' Daniel said, looking straight ahead. "'I like the movies. "'Mom and me, we walk into town sometimes after the season "'and see one at the Haven Theater.' "'He fell silent again, his eyes unfocused, as if he was replaying a memory of a scene from one of those movies. Then he looked up and asked, Can we go home now? On the way back, William started skipping. Daniel tried but couldn't get the hang of it. But he could run, and he beat William back to the grocery store by 15 yards. They both stood in front of the store, hands on their knees, trying to catch their breath. Nettie spotted them. Daniel, get in here! He loped into the grocery, and William walked back to the cabin. Over the next few weeks, he found himself telling Daniel about the kids on his block, the Troy Street Gang they called themselves, and more about school. He said nothing about the eviction or about worrying where their new apartment might be, whether he'd be on a new block or have to go to a new school when they moved back in the fall. William kept these concerns to himself, but he shared many other things, his favorite radio programs, and his favorite teachers. He even told Daniel about a girl he liked named Susan. And no matter how long William talked, Daniel wanted to hear more. William began to feel like a storyteller, like the woman at the library who read books to the kids during the summer. Sometimes he wondered what stories Daniel had heard in other summers and whether he was judging his stories against those. The weather turned warmer. William and his mother walked into town where they met a woman and her son, Richie, who looked to be about William's age. His family was from Grand Rapids, and they had rented a home on Elm Street for two months. After some pleading, the mothers agreed to let William and Richie go to a movie at the Haven. They would meet them afterward at the park. The boys saw The Story of G.I. Joe and split a box of popcorn. They became friends, and William went to Richie's house almost every day. They played ball or walked the beach, although it would be weeks before the water warmed up enough to go swimming. Every time William ran out of the cabin to meet his new friend, Daniel was there, sitting on the grass near the back door of the grocery. The first few times he raised his head, his eyes wide with a look of anticipation. William avoided acknowledging him, and soon, Daniel didn't bother looking up. Reggie was a couple inches taller than William, his hair, in a crew cut like William's, was bright red, and he had freckles over his face and arms. He was chunky, and when they raced, he couldn't keep up. William could skip faster than Ritchie could run. But Ritchie could throw pretty hard, so playing catch with him was a challenge. One day, while they were skipping stones across the river, Ritchie asked William if he had ever used a BB gun. When William shook his head, Ritchie said, Come on, I'll show you. Back at his house, Richie showed William his Red Ryder gun. I killed a rabbit once, he said. Got up real close and bam, he was dead. That's stupid. Why would you kill a rabbit? It's fun. And know what? My dad's got a real gun. A pistol he hides under the mattress. I snuck it out once and shot at a tree. I got whooped for that. I don't like guns, William said. What are you, some kind of fairy? William didn't respond, but decided he was through with Richie. Returning to the cabin, he spotted Daniel hauling out the garbage. Good old Daniel. Yo! William yelled to him. Daniel looked up, but then he walked back into the store without turning around. William stayed close to the cabin for the next few days and close to his comic books. From his cot, he often spotted Daniel sitting in the deep shade behind the grocery, humming. He looked up once, and their eyes met, but Daniel looked down quickly and began tying and untying his shoes. Eventually, William asked him if he wanted to play catch. Daniel shook his head. "'Well, let's at least go to the park.' "'No,' Daniel said, pulling his knees closer to his chest. It took a while, but Daniel's coolness abated over time, and the two eventually fell back into their earlier routine.' One day returning from town with his mother, William found Daniel sitting on his cot and looking through his comic books. What's this? Daniel asked. Captain Marvel Jr. was on the cover, poking at the nose of an ugly giant with a pen. Daniel was pointing at a small white rectangle. It says, fight infantile paralysis, join the March of Dimes. Oh, it's a disease. Daniel pointed to the giant. Is that the disease? William was about to explain that the message in the white rectangle had nothing to do with the giant battling Captain Marvel Jr., but it occurred to him that it wouldn't be a bad idea if it did. Could be. Let's go to the park. On the swings, with William talking more about Chicago, Daniel asked if he was going back. Sure, he said quickly, hiding the worry he had that his father wouldn't be able to find an apartment. (laughs) Vacationers were beginning to pour into South Haven. The resorts were filling up, and so were the public beaches. Soon William could meet kids his own age, maybe even some from Chicago. He knew he wouldn't be taking Daniel with him, and he wondered if Daniel realized this. One afternoon, while his mother was in town, William and Daniel were lying on the grass behind the grocery looking at comic books when they heard someone inside the store yelling at Nettie. They could see Nettie with her arms raised. There's no more money, she screamed. The man was wearing worn blue overalls without a shirt. His face was red and pockmarked. He held a knife. You're lying, he growled. Daniel screamed, Mom, and rushed into the grocery. The man whirled around and caught Daniel in the arm with his knife. Daniel grabbed the man and squeezed, pinning his arms at his sides. They fell to the floor, the knife slipping out of the man's hand and landing at Nettie's feet. Daniel's grip was tight, and the man couldn't move. Their faces were an inch apart, Daniel yelling, Mum over and over again, the thief cursing Daniel and straining to break free. But Daniel held on. Run across to the Meltons! Have them call the police! Nettie shouted at William, finally realizing she could put down her arms. Quick! William did as she said. "'Robber!' he yelled, running across the road and pounding on the Melton's front door. "'Robber!' When Mrs. Melton opened the door, William pointed back at the grocery, hardly able to speak. She grabbed his arm, pulled him into their living room and closed the door. William sat at the front window while Mrs. Melton made the call. A few minutes later, a squad car with two policemen arrived. William could see Nettie standing outside the grocery holding the thief's knife. The police needed to pry Daniel's arms from the man. William noticed the blood on the floor and on Daniel's arm. He watched as Nettie took a piece of checkerboard cloth and wrapped it around Daniel's arm. A second police car pulled up and one of the policemen handcuffed the man and threw him into the back seat. Nettie and Daniel were put in the other car and taken to the hospital. William's mother returned in time to see the thief being shoved into the police car. Now that his mother had returned, Mrs. Melton allowed him to go back across the street. He sat with her on the steps in front of the grocery, telling her what had happened. The setting sun began to shift to red, and the shadow of the store cooled him. You okay? she asked, putting her arm around her son and pulling him close. Yeah, I guess. That was a scary-looking young man. He didn't scare Daniel, William said. The image of Daniel bleeding, but holding tight to the man, would stay with him for years. Oh, I think he was scared, but he wanted to protect his mother. Yeah, I guess so. William sat quietly for what seemed a long time. I've got good news, his mother said, breaking the silence. Daddy's found us a place on Kedzie, right around the corner from where we were. We can move in at the beginning of September. I bought a cake to celebrate. William cried, and his mother held him tighter, rocking slowly back and forth on the creaky steps. It was dark by the time the police brought Nettie and Daniel back to the grocery. He's fine, Nettie said as she left the squad car and walked toward the store. On the way, she bent down and lightly touched William's shoulder. She stopped at the door of the grocery, sighed a long, low whistle like a steam engine coming to rest. Daniel, his arm bandaged, walked behind his mother. He hesitated as he reached William and then, without saying a word, went inside. This story is copyright 2021 by Robert Sachs. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff
0: Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.